Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We're going to be discussing this chapter. As many of you know, uh, the Old Testament basically uh, is written in the Hebrew in the New Testament, basically Greek. Daniel's an exception, a small exception. From chapter 1 through chapter 2 and verse 4, it's written in Hebrew because obviously God wanted the Hebrew people to understand it well. From chapter 2 and verse 5, all the way through chapter 7 is in Aramaic. And that was so the Babylonians would have an understanding. Now, there were always crossovers on that, but Daniel is unique. So in chapter 8, we would say the rest of the book is really emphasizing the nation of Israel. So this morning, I just give you that little tidbit from chapter 8 through chapter 12 is written in Hebrew, which wouldn't make any difference to me because I'm not that good in Hebrew. In fact, I'm not good at all in it. But anyway, uh, so we know that it's emphasized and stressed uh, that we're going to be talking about end times, and this is a very pivotal passage uh, for these next uh, few chapters, and it really dovetails into the book of Revelation. So I just want to encourage you, you want to have a good understanding of the book of Revelation, make sure you have a good understanding of the book of Daniel, and that will be a good background for you and for myself. What's next on the world scene for Israel? Uh, fortunately, I don't have to tell you who Israel is. You see it in the news almost every day. Something's always going on in Jerusalem and Palestine with the Arabs and the Israelis and back and forth and has been since 1948. When we come to Daniel chapter 8, he's going to major on the fact who is this Antichrist? Who is this world ruler that is to come to rule the earth in the end times and pour out his wrath not only on all the earth but specifically towards the nation of Israel? It's important for us to understand that. And so we're going to find in chapter 8 really where is this Antichrist, this beast that's named in, uh, as a beast in the book of Revelation. Where is, what country is that going to come out of? Now, let me warn you from the beginning. There's a lot of things I don't understand, okay? So I'm not going to try to make predictions. You know, M.R. Dehan, now many of you would not know or have read M.R. Dehan books. This goes way back another generation. But he was one of the prominent teachers uh, to most of the American Christians. And uh, that was right after World War II and Mussolini, who was the, uh, the president of Italy. And so Mussolini became the Antichrist. And so we have to be careful that we don't associate just because of modern day certain people we don't like, and certainly Mussolini would have been one that you would not like, uh, but we have to be careful. And I'm going to try to do that. We're not going to set dates because I don't know the date. I don't think anybody knows the date. And Jesus said nobody knows the date, not even him, so I'm not going to try that either. We're going to look at the passage, and we're going to apply it to the end times. And I trust this will be a good encouragement to you as we read through this chapter together. Let's pray. Father, we, we realize from the reading of Scripture and the study of it that Israel is the very center of your heart. A nation, Father, that was born out of Egypt, out of captivity. And Lord, it's been a long journey for the nation of Israel, your children. Lord, you called them into existence to be a light to the world. And we see down through the centuries, Lord, just a path of disobedience, and very rarely do we find obedience. And even to this present hour, 
even though a political entity on the world scene today since 1948, but certainly, Lord, not what you've called them to be. And we know that your heart is broken and it's grieved. And so, Father, we would ask that for most of us who are Gentiles here this morning, that our hearts would be encouraged to reach out to the chosen people of Israel, that we may have a passion to spread the gospel to Jewish people who must come to salvation in Christ the same as we as Gentiles. So give us, Lord, some clarity here by your Spirit. He is our teacher this morning. And we will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. I often look at the nation of Israel as a, quote, child of God. Much the way that you and I as parents look at our children obviously born into our family, and we have such high expectations for them, especially as Christian parents. We want them to come to know Christ. We want them to mature in Christ. We want them to have a fervency and a commitment to Jesus Christ. And and we would just say, if, if that comes to pass, and we pray that it does, nothing else really matters about our children. We just want them to have a living, close relationship with Jesus Christ all through their lives. But in those first 18 to 20 years we have in our homes, we really work hard at it. We really work hard at giving them the word, instructing them, disciplining them. And then there are those hard times when they disobey, and we really must come along with disobedience. And we realize that after they leave our home that sometimes other entities discipline our children, our grown children. It may be the laws of our land. It may be other entities. Even when you're in school, sometimes a teacher has to discipline, even though I think that's a forgotten thing today, sadly to say. Uh, Most of us my age, uh, when we got disciplined at school, no questions asked. We just went home, got disciplined again. You just had to man up and take it again. And it really didn't warp us. It didn't ruin us. It might have turned our hair white, but uh, we got along okay. Uh, But uh, we care. Now, same as with the nation of Israel. This is the apple of God's eyes. You, use, you see that phrase in Jeremiah, the apple of God's eye. What does that mean? God says, I protect and love Israel as one would protect the pupil of his eye. That's an endearment for the nation of Israel. He said to Israel, he said, I will never forget you. It's like your name is engraved upon the palm of my hand. What does that mean? God's careful protection of the nation of Israel. So many centuries in disobedience. So many centuries of disobeying God from the standpoint, we will not make your name known to the nations. We will live like the world. We will live like we want to live. And God loves them so much to this present hour that there are some dark days coming for the nation of Israel because to the nation of Israel, God will be bringing extreme discipline then why would he do that so that they come to repentance you and i as parents we discipline our children why because we want them to turn we want them to obey and we realize that that is a principle that god has given to us all the background of this from our previous messages let me just take a moment because we need to build that basis we clearly understand that god brought Israel into existence. And he gave them a piece of land, Palestine, Canaan, as we read in scriptures. And that would be the place where God says, I'll protect you, I'll love you, 
I will give you all that you need. I just ask one thing of you. Please make my name known to the nations around you. Well, you know the history of that, as we have mentioned here in just a moment ago. For almost 600, 650 years, Israel disobeyed. God was long-suffering. He was patient. But soon he came to the place where he says, we're going to have to start the discipline process. This basically occurred in about 722 B.C. with the Assyrian captivity. It went on through the Babylonian captivity in the times of the Gentiles, even to the present hour. Because what we saw in 606 of the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, and now we're ready for the revived Roman Empire. Those are all God uses the nations of the world to discipline his people because he loves them. And because God has started this process, he will end the process, and this discipline will bring them to repentance. When Christ returns to this earth again, still lies in the future. When will he come again? We're not really sure, but we do know that he's coming. And when he comes and Israel sees him as a nation, they will repent and say, this is the one that we have crucified. And then God, for a thousand years, Israel will rule and reign as the head of all nations. And people will come to Jerusalem to worship, and God's heart obviously will just rejoice in that. And we will rejoice with them, and we will be with them, as we will discuss in later messages. Come with me, first of all, though, to Ezekiel chapter 36. I know that's not Daniel, but Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel. I want, to, I want you to see this concept from Daniel's contemporary, the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is going to describe to us how God sees Israel. It's a wonder, it's, this is just not about Israel in that sense, but it's about us as well. In verse 20 of Ezekiel chapter 36, and I'm actually going to read through verse 28, but I'm going to break it up into two parts, and you'll see that in just a moment. Beginning at verse 20. When they came to the nations, they referring to Israel, when they came to the nations where they went, took them off into captivity, yes, they profaned. What did they do in captivity? They profaned my name. They blasphemed my holy name. I just asked them to live like I wanted them to live. I wanted them to honor me before the nations of the world. God's heart is for the nations of the world. But even after the discipline, even after the captivities, Israel continued to profane my name. Because it was said of them, now you will get the parallel here, these are the people of the Lord, these Israelites, yet they have come out of his land. You see, the world is saying, ha ha, ha ha. We have heard how this God of Israel is going to maintain them, protect them, and they're going to be victorious. But this God has allowed other nations to come in and extract them out of their land. Now, we know scripturally why that happened, because of Israel's disobedience, that the world was mocking. You've heard something similar to that. You've heard people who have said, well, if that's a Christian, <laughs> I certainly don't want to be one. You see the parallel? That's the reason why not only did God call Israel to proclaim his holy name to the nations of the world, he has said to you and I as believers, go and make disciples of what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. You see, it's the same for us as individual Gentiles and 
Jewish people who have come to know Christ. Notice in verse 21. But I had a concern for my holy name. Underscore that if you wouldn't mind. I had a concern for my holy name. What in the world does that mean? This is one of those early indicators that life is not about you and it's not about me and it's not about this church. Everything is about God and his holy name. We are simply chosen vessels of God to make his name, not our name. See how the difference is with the world? The world is after our name, my name. Look at me. Look what I can do. Look what I have. God says, that's opposite why I brought you into existence as an individual, because every individual was born to make God's name known. Israel forfeited that and the discipline, but you see the world responding to that. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Now I know where my father got that. You see, my father's deal was this. After hard work at school and sports and hard work on the farm, I thought it was hard work. On Saturday night, maybe twice a year, I'd say, Dad, can I go out with the boys? Twice a year, not twice a night, twice a year. He said, yes, on one condition. Remember what your last name is. Now, what was he saying? Don't go profaning my name to our little area in southern Ohio. Because if you do, you're in trouble. And I understood that. Now, whether he got it from Ezekiel, I don't know. But the parallel is there. That's exactly what God is saying. Verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. As I took you out, I'm going to bring you in. And that is still yet future. Israel will be brought back to their land to be the light of the world in the millennial kingdom for a thousand years. You see, God uses discipline in order to cleanse. It's not abuse. He disciplines the nation of Israel. He's going to have a horrible discipline of Israel called the time of Jacob's trouble, which still lies in our future, and it will occur because God has promised. In verse 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you. It talks about a spiritual birth. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. This explains what John 3 is about with the salvation of Nicodemus and about sprinkling of clean water. It's talking about salvation. Notice in verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit there. I will put a new spirit. You will be a new person. And he's saying there's coming a day that Israel will be all that God intended it to be. And I will remove the heart of stone. I will take that stony heart from your flesh, your hardness, your rebellion, your obstinance, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a live one. 
Verse 27, then I will put the Holy Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinance. Why? Because now you have a new heart. You will want to look. You want to know if you're saved. It's not, have you kept the commandments perfectly? Because nobody does. It's impossible. Here's how you tell. Do you want to keep the commandments? Do you desire to keep the commandments? Do you desire to be something that God can use for His glory? You'd say, no way, man. It's all about me. Hey, Christianity, that's cool. Everybody ought to be a Christian. But that's the world's understanding of Christianity. You and I, as born-again believers... You and I are like David because of our new heart and by the Holy Spirit. Because his laws, his commandments, his precepts are like honey. They're sweeter than honey. And they're difficult at times because he's changing our lives. But he goes on to say here in verse 28, You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers, so you will be my people, and I will be your God. God never leaves nor forsake. His, the name of Israel is engraved upon his palm. He protects them as the apple of his eye. And he says, I, I will not leave you. I will discipline you but to bring holiness. But I will perform. I will accomplish my work. Isn't that amazing like Philippians 1, 6? The work that God has begun in you and me as believers, he will what? Continue until the day of what? There's no way you're going to lose your salvation. God's just going to change us. God's going to accomplish all that he has for us. So what is next for Israel? Well, God will begin to prepare the nation of Israel for repentance. How's he going to do that? He's going to have all the nations of the world. This is the book of Revelation, basically. All the nations of the world converge upon Israel, the land of Israel. And there he's going to discipline the nation of Israel. Some have approximated, and probably by the end of 2010 we'll have a little closer concept of the population. But Israel today is around 16, 17 millions of people scattered all over the known world. Remember, still more Jewish people live outside the nation of Israel than live inside the nation of Israel. Zechariah tells us during this horrible time of this intense discipline that we call the tribulation hour that is still lies in our future, two-thirds will die. According to those terms, those figures, if they're somewhat accurate, would be 11 million Jewish people will die within the period of seven years. The Holocaust of World War II doesn't even come close to that. You'd say, you mean this God is going to permit that to happen? I tell you, God is very serious about anybody profaning his name. And whatever it takes, God will do because he loves And I would say that probably it takes the heart of God to understand that. You as a parent, my parents, it was amazing at times. Why do you let a teacher spank me? Dad, come on, intervene. No, son. (laughs) It takes all of that discipline. And when she or he gets through, I'll finish it for you. That was good. That was good. So in our study this morning, we're going to observe Daniel's vision. God gives Daniel a vision of the very principles we're talking about here in chapter 8. So here's the big point. 
Here's something that I think that we can take with us the rest of the week. God always accomplishes his purposes. What God starts, he always finishes. God never does it halfway. Sometimes I start things. If you'd look at my office right now, I have about 20 projects that started. None of them are finished, so obviously you can uh, imagine what my office looks like. God never does that. God always finishes. It may take many centuries to accomplish it, but he does. Now, come with me to Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. We're going to take the first 14 verses. going to go rather quickly because here Daniel is just recording what the vision is. Verses 15 through 27, he's actually going to explain. Gabriel, the angel, you've heard of him in Matthew, is going to come and explain to Daniel what this vision is all about. Beginning at verse 1, Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king... A vision appeared to me, Daniel. So the vision comes to Daniel. He's giving the time sequence here historically. Subsequent to the one which appeared to me previous. Chapter 7 was a vision. Now he has another vision. In verse 2, where's this located? Where's, what's he seeing in the vision? I looked in the vision. While I was looking, I was in the citadel or the capital city of Susa. Now, this was going to be one of the major cities of the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the next empire to come after the end of of Babylon, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Eula Canal. Always keep in mind, chapter 2 is the king Nebuchadnezzar is given a dream. Man always looks at the world as it's always about us. And so you see this huge 90-foot statue, nine feet across, 90 feet high, nine feet across. That's a skinny one, but nevertheless, <laughs> it's huge for that time. And it's seen there as what man, and he names Babylon the empire, and then Medo-Persian, then Greece, and then Rome, and then the Ten Toes, which is the revived Roman empire. When God looks at the nations of the world, he sees something totally different in chapter 7. And now in chapter 8, we're going to see something not like what man has done, but we're going to see the animal aspect of humanity. Bear, leper, a lion, ferocious animals, because you see that in the nations of the world. It's an image of them because they're always fighting and devouring one another. Well, notice in verse 3, Daniel records, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, a male sheep, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire, which had two horns. In fact, the coinage of the Medo-Persian Empire had the symbol of a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now, the two horns were long. Remember, Medo-Persian, two empires merged together, and the first ones was Darius and, or Darius, and Cyrus. But one was longer than the other, and that one refers to Cyrus, which the longer one came up last. We know historically, in the putting together of the Medo-Persian Empire, Persia became the stronger one, the latter one, and finally defeated the Medes. I saw this ram butting westward, westward, northward, and southward. So it's moving to the west, to the north, and to the south. And no other beast could stand before him, this Medo-Persian empire. Nobody could take it over. No one could capture it. 
nor was there anyone to receive rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. As you just read secular history, a massive empire, massive. Only Alexander the Great would have more territory. In verse 5, he says, while I was observing, though, now you can imagine this male sheep moving, east, or moving west and north and south, pushing, taking land, capturing people, destroying lives. Well, in verse 5, while I was observing this, Daniel said, behold, a male goat was coming from the west. Now, if you come from the west and you're going west, going to have a collision, aren't you? Well, that's exactly what happened, because who followed the Medo-Persian Empire? Alexander the Great in the Grecian Empire. Here it is. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west. It's interesting that Alexander the Great named his first son after a goat. Actually, takes that name. Over the surface of the earth, without touching the ground, it's a speedy Grecian Empire... Alexander the Great was probably one of the great brains of humanity, even though he died at the age of 33. He was a master of being a battle savvy. And so, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, which obviously would relate historically, we know, to Alexander the Great. And he came up to the ram, the Medo-Persian Empire that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, he was engaged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him, referring to the Medo-Persians. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram, the, or the Medo-Persians, from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Remember, Alexander the Great goes all the way to India, and then his troops just said, man, we are exhausted. We're tired. Let's go home. This has been upwards to three years. Alexander the Great moves back to Babylon of today. And there, because of his sinful life, alcohol, marsh fever, women, he dies. He dies in the midst of a drunken orgy at the age of 33. And in its place, this, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. Alexander the Great died at the age of 33. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous what? Horns, in other words, horns in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, referred to empires or or powerful individuals toward the four winds of heaven. We do know that there were the four generals of main generals from Alexander the Great Armies then began to have their own providences that they ruled over. You say, what's the big deal of this? Maybe you're not a history buff. I'm not either. But if God took the time to put it in here, I'm going to listen. There is no other book in the world no other religious book known to man that will take their sacred writings, they call, quote, and match it with history. This is the reason why the Bible is so unique. 
Because God is always dating, he's always saying, check it out, check it out, check it out, check it out. You don't find this in the Koran. You don't find it in Eastern religion. But you find the accuracy of this in the Word of God. Uh, we've, got a ch- we've got a map here I want to show you about the Grecian Empire. And I'm sorry the colors don't come out real well in this, but you can see some of the big uh, names. You've got Ptolemy, who was one of the generals in the Egypt, uh, Egypt today. You see that down on the bottom left. Uh, Seleucus, who is more or less Iran, Iraq of today, more of the Far East. Uh, then you have Corsander, uh, who was more over towards Macedonia and Lymascus. Those were the generals, and they divided this great empire up, massive empire, all the way to India, as I spoke before. Now then, where does this world ruler, where does he come from? Daniel states that this world ruler that is yet to come will come from the restored Roman Empire, but we've got to remember something here. And I think sometimes this is something that we have a tendency to forget. In the restored Roman Empire, it includes Greece. Okay? You've got something like 27 member nations now in the EU. And um, they're looking to expand. 27. They are talking about 40 nations in the European Union divided into 10 kingdoms. Now we've got to be careful because we're looking at what we're reading in the paper and we have to be, but it's interesting. You get up to 40 nations and this is, these are some of the plans that they have now. This is just in recent days as, as you look at that situation. I believe what we're going to read this morning There was an Antigas Epiphanes, who was a Grecian. He certainly had the attitude and the character of the last world ruler that we read of in the book of Revelation, the Antichrist, the the beast, uh, whatever name you want to use there in the book of Revelation, normally it's the beast. But it's interesting. It seems to be the scriptural proof more, or the weight of scripture is that this Antichrist comes out of this Grecian empire. And I'll I'll seek to kind of give you some references to that. Notice in verse 9, out of one of them, now he's talked about these four generals that divided up the empire, out of one of them, out of one of the generals came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south toward the east and toward the beautiful land, which would be Judea, or the land of Palestine. Verse 10, it grew up to the host of heaven. This, this one, this little horn, became powerful and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. Probably a reference to Jewish people. Verse 11, it even magnified itself. This little horn magnified itself to be equal with the commander of hosts, which is a reference to God. Now, we're going to see that in chapter 9 and chapter 11 of Daniel as we get there in the weeks ahead. Uh, this is going to parallel 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you want to write that down. It's not in your notes. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Revelation chapter 13, the language is so parallel here. It, 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 it's amazing. I was astonished again as I went through it. It goes on to say in verse 11, even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. We know in the tribulation hour, 
that there was that there is coming that time when the Jewish sacrifices will stop and the world ruler will go in and desecrate the temple, desecrate the altar. You can imagine sacrificing a pig on the altar, the temple. And yet that's what we read of. In verse 12, and on account of the transgression, the host will be given over to the horn. The Jewish people will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice and it will be, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper, even establishes himself as God. Now, it's a little bit difficult, but it seems the flow of scripture here is not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, which was another ruler before the time of Christ. It seems from 7 and 8, he's shooting directly in and saying, I'm going to give you some insight, Daniel, on the end time. We'll see this a little bit clearer in just a moment. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place, the Jewish temple, and the host, the Jewish people, to be trampled, how long will this last? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, that's about six and a third years, then the holy place will be properly restored. 2,300. You'd say, wow, that must be significant. What does it mean? All right, get your pencil out, right? Here it is. I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue what the 2,300. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just admit my, I don't have a clue. I know it's true, and I know it's in the Bible, and I believe it, but there's a lot of things I can't explain that I believe in the Bible. I'm, this is the piece of the puzzle still out here beyond the borders of the puzzle, okay? And one of these days, probably in heaven, or if you know what it is, please tell me after the message, okay? All right, let's move on, because I don't know. That's, that's the end of the statement, okay? Let's go to 15. Now, here comes the interpretation. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Eula of the canal, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Verse 17, so he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand, son of man being Daniel, understand that the vision pertains to what? To the time of the end that's beyond us that's important there so this interpretation of this vision even though Antigus Epiphanes certainly it was a forerunner a very vicious ungodly man there's been many of them obviously this shoots us right into the end times Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 says this. We're just going to jump ahead for one verse here. Then the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will prove monstrous things against the god of gods and he will prosper. Now, really do underscore this. Until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. The Hebrew word there for indignation is used with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And they're always used in reference to the very end times. So I think that is significant. That is significant. Verse 18. Now while, now while he was talking with me, as Gabriel was talking with me, Daniel, I sank into a deep sleep. 
I would just see them somebody sleeping. You know, it says here, I mean, let's take the word literally. I, they sank into a deep sleep while my face the ground, but he touched me and made me stand. I've been talking, and I just wonder if any of you went to sleep. And Dali, not yet. Okay, all right, wake up. Come on, come with me. Verse 19, and said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur. Look at these words. I'm going, Gabriel says, Daniel, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation meaning a time of wrath. For it pertains to the appointed time of the end. That's, to me, it's weighty that it's not referring to Antigus Epiphanes. But to this world ruler at the end, still future to us, verse 20, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although none with his power. They're inferior kingdoms. Now watch this in verse 23. In the latter period of their rule, as there's a revived Roman Empire from earlier visions, which still lies future to us. Basically, at least has 27 nations now as these smaller nations begin to form. Probably upwards to 40, at least that's what they're looking for. There's also a renewing here of the Grecian Empire. And that sets the stage to where does this one world ruler come from? Maybe not Germany. Maybe not Italy. Scripture seems to I think it suggests that he comes out of the Grecian Empire. Now, is that the most major thing in Scripture? No, but we do want to give careful attention to the word. And so he goes on. When the transgressions run their course, a king will arise. I would say you can put here the beast, the Antichrist. Insolent, in other words, overbearing, skilled in intrigue, a schemer. The deceiver, all the things that we read in other parts of the Bible about the Antichrist. His power will be mighty, but not his own power. Where does the Antichrist get his power? As there is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there is also a satanic trinity. Satan himself, a false prophet, and a world what? Ruler, the Antichrist. And where does he get his power? Obviously, Revelation brings it out very clearly that he gets it from Satan. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Two-thirds of them wiped out. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. Mark of the beast. Those are the types of things we read in Revelation. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. Who is that? Christ himself. But he will be broken without human agency. You see, the Medo-Persians, Darius, took Belshazzar and brought his empire down. That was the beginning of the Medo-Persians. Alexander the Great comes in and destroys the Medo-Persians. Rome comes in and destroys Greece. 
What nation comes in and takes care of the Antichrist? None. It's too powerful. This verse says, in verse 25, the latter part, but he will be broken without human agency. There is no more human empires. This is it. The next empire will be God's for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom, where God will rule and reign on planet Earth, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so what we find here then, as we continue in verse 35, but he will be broken without human agency. He's overthrown by divine intervention. That's exactly what we read at the second advent of Christ. It says that he slays the nations of the world by what? The sword of his mouth. God just speaks it into existence. (laughs) And the existence is, it's done with. Surely if God can speak into existence this universe, it's no problem for an almighty, powerful God to slay the armies of the world without a tank or a gun. He just speaks the word and it's what? It's done. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings. You remember that from also the first chapter of Genesis. The vision of the evenings and the mornings which have been told is true. Well, you know, if I was Daniel, I'd say, well, wow, Lord, this is pretty exciting. I don't think I got it all. (laughs) But, man, it's pretty good stuff. What do you want me to do with it? The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true, but keep the vision secret. Now, the word secret there means protected. Don't lose it, Daniel. Protect it. It's not for everybody to know right now, Daniel. It will be known later. And he brings this out in chapter 12 of Daniel. There will be plenty of time to reveal it, but Daniel, here's your vision. Now, we have the privilege of looking back on it. For it pertains to many days in the what? In the future. Let me uh, see if we can get the map up on the EU, the 27 nations. Maybe, that, maybe you can see that one a little bit better. Presently today, here are the 27 nations that are in the EU. And like I said earlier, they're, they're hoping they can get up to 40. And those 40 are probably going to be further east uh, and take also some of the current nations, um, Iran, Iraq, uh, those that were all part of the Grecian Empire. It's moving in that direction. Uh, these nations obviously are being formed, uh, you know, from year to year. Uh, Greece was not an independent nation after their fall until 1821. So that's pretty recent when you take world history. Egypt became an entity, a nation by itself in 1953. Some of us remember that. Iran, 1979. So can we be dogmatic? No. But it's interesting, we've never seen this for 2,000 years, and we see little by little. Now, should we go out and raid Kroger's and get all of our food in? Please don't do that, because I want to go later today, and I want to find some bread. Uh, But I don't want to take away from this, but God knows the time. Now, something occurs here in the last part of 27. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Now, you have to look at it from Daniel. These are his people. And he sees this horrible time coming 
when there will be a Grecian who will utterly seek to annihilate his people. That would be the same if you got a vision and said, in a future day, a future time, beyond today, somebody's going to come and wipe out your grandchildren and your children and your family. Well, you'd get a little wheezy in your tummy too. And so would I. So what Daniel is experiencing here is not something he, not some pizza he had, but seeing this, he's astonished and saying, Lord, perhaps is there another way than to put our people, I know we have profaned your name. I know we have not been the people that you want us to be. And he just saw the utter destruction of a nation. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. Remember, he was a high-ranking official in the Babylonian Empire. Now, here's what I want you to see. But I was astonished at the vision, and there was none to explain it. But what did he do? He went ahead and carried on the what? He didn't raid croakers. He didn't build him a concrete home 10 feet under the ground to protect himself. Can you imagine these people who believe, as I do, in the tribulation, but they go out? We saw this a few decades ago when, we, when Jack Van Impey was proposing and some others were giving some dates and for and the people. Cannot God take care of a concrete house 10 feet underground? I think that's possible, you know. And maybe you're not going to be here anyway, all right? So I think Daniel gives us some good insight here. What should we do? Go about the Lord's business. We know it's coming because here's the vision. It says that it is true, and obviously it's in God's word. It is true. What should we be about? Making God known tomorrow. What's your opportunities? Some of you will go to an office. Some of you will go to a coal mine. Some of you will go to... A school and a sovereign God will provide you and me with opportunities. It won't be probably somebody calling and bowing down at your knees and say, Oh, tell me how to be saved. Now that occurs once in a while and be ready. But it's just somebody wants a listening ear. It's building a friendship. What do you what do you do for fun? Well, I go to church. That'll give you talk about your maturity as a Christian, won't it? I listen to long messages every Sunday. Come and join me. But I guarantee you, my friend, if you and I will be consistent to pray every morning, Lord, I have one goal in life, and that is to know you, to properly make you known. I don't care what you do with me, where you put me in a hospital, you put me in government, wherever it is, that's, that's the high priority. I want to make you known. I want to make you known. I want to make you know. I want to be accurate in what I tell people, so I'm going to have to study the Word. I'm going to take some time. I'm going to have to be a good student of God's Word. This is the point that Daniel is making. In light of devastation to come, what's the future of Israel? The future of Israel is great because when God is through purging them and bringing them to repentance, they will do exactly what God assigned them to do for a thousand years. But what's next for the nation of Israel? Extreme persecution. 
two out of every three Jewish people will die. We have never seen anything like that. Jesus says in the Matthew 24 and 25 Olivet Discourse, he says, unless he cut it off, unless God cut, stops the tribulation hour, you know what would happen to the world? We would annihilate ourselves. That's the kind of people we are without God. We would absolutely annihilate the human race. And so God says, seven years is enough. And then he comes and he establishes his kingdom. I trust this encourages you. It's, a, it's not the easiest, this section here. But folks, let me just say this in, in closing. If you have the time, you look at every passage that talks about an exhortation to serve God, and you will always, always find it in the context of future events. God has something to say about that. Time is short, and I believe it is, be about God's business. For you and I as Christians, let's go make him known this week. God will do the saving. God will do the work. His spirit will bring people to Christ. He just wants us to be clear. Let's not be like let's not be like Israel and go out into the world tomorrow and the world question whether we are a believer or not. Let's make it very clear we are. And we not only believe that and not only say we are, we live out the life of Christ. It'll change the world. It'll change where you work. And so let's pray for one another as we do that. Two things. Lessons to be learned. Here it is. Lessons to be learned. God is serious about making himself known to the world through Israel and through you and I as believers. I tell you, this is, this is serious stuff. There is nothing going on in your life more serious than this. I don't care if you only got 24 hours to live. There is nothing more serious than this. And that is obedience to God to make him known. So when you go to see Rosen Questenberry, make sure you make God known, okay? Or wherever you go, all right? Number two, God will prove himself unique. God's ultimate purpose is that one day the world will see Christ and they will come to Jerusalem to worship and they will say, my Lord and my God. This is the true and living God of the universe. And look how great and powerful he is. Look how loving he is. Look how just he is. God will prove everything and he will manifest everything he's ever told us about himself. Therefore, it's about him. It's not about us. But he has chose us to be a part of his work. So as we worship this morning, is the response, worship is simply the response that you and I give to God for who he is, what he has done, and what he will do. That's worship. Lord, I exalt you. I tell you, I need you. I appreciate what you have done to bring me to Christ. I appreciate what you're doing in my life right now, even though it may be painful, but it, it also for some it may be great, no pain. Lord, it doesn't matter because I trust you with my life. I trust that's your heart. Let's bow and let's take about 20, 25 seconds. It's your opportunity to talk with the Lord. What are you going to do with this? 
You may have come in here this morning and you don't know the Lord. What are you going to do with this? Can you escape it? No. After death, the judgment. What are you going to say to a holy God who's provided salvation for you free? Are you willing to surrender your life? Are you willing to give it up to take him as your Lord and Savior? I trust you are. Father, for our modern-day world, it's so difficult to be quiet. There's always, a, there's always a background of something going on that kind of deafens us to what truth is. Lord, you know our heart. You know our thinking. You know everything about us. You know how we're responding to your truth this morning. Lord, if there would be one who would say, Lord, I give it up. I don't want life to be about me anymore. I want to learn about who you are, my creator. I want to live the life that you have created for me. I want to live it for your glory. I do understand that to become a Christian is to make you known. And I know you will teach me how to do that. And you will give me the enablement. I just believe you'll do that, Father, and I'm going to trust you by faith. And I know that you died for my sins. You will forgive me of all of my sins, past and present and future. I will become your child. I will be given the gift of eternal life now. I don't have to wait till I get to heaven. Because salvation is by faith and faith alone and not by my works. And so, Father, I, I'm just like a little child. Would you take me and teach me? I give you my life. And, Father, we thank you for the ears that hear, the hearts that will be changed. Lord, tomorrow may we be keen to see those opportunities that we normally pass up. May we listen, may we watch carefully to see where you're working. And by the enablement of your spirit, may we proclaim your holy name. Thank you for the book of Daniel. Thank you, Lord, for this man who served so many administrations in a foreign country and did it that your name was made known. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.